Okay, so hello and welcome. Thank you very much for joining us today. So today I am joined by my friend Rich, who is an entrepreneur. He owns a construction business, a roofing business, and an ADHD coaching business, as well as working with young people in schools to educate them about entrepreneurship. So Rich, thank you so much for being here today. Do you want to tell us a little bit in your own words about what you do, who you are, and what you want to talk about today? Yeah, um, so yeah, as you sort of say, um, my main, what defines me most, I guess, is is is, is my businesses and, and, and what I do there. Um, so yeah, founding owner of, of a number of businesses, um, and, and just working with um, young children and, and young adults with ADHD and autism, um, or, or anything on the spectrum, really. Um, also own a construction business. Um, my own developing company um, and also just launched a, a roofing business as a sister, sister business to the, to the main contracting stuff that we do um, and yeah and outside of that currently on a on a journey with, um, with stage four bowel cancer as well so yeah that's kind of how I would define myself at the minute so business owner and and um, yeah just just sort of on a journey with with um, with health as well. Right. And you've just, I know you've founded a charity, um, Balbros as well, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But primarily today, we're going to talk about mental resilience in business, in life, and specifically in the face of catastrophe. And I'm really grateful you're here to share your personal experience about today. But before we dive in, I want to start with the concept first of mental resilience more broadly, because I know that's something you've been a big believer in long before your diagnosis. And so, Obviously, that's become much more acutely demanded of you recently. But can you talk a bit more about what mental resilience means to you as a concept and maybe where you think that comes from? Yeah, I mean, I think mental resilience is the foundation of everything I do and who I am, not just professionally, but who I am as a person. Um, I think that life can throw some really heinous stuff for you at times I mean it doesn't just have to be illness it can be a uh, relationship breaking down or um, difficulties in childhood or um, problems with debt whatever it may be um, I think that my entire life has been grounded in um, what I call bounce back ability just to be able to deal with anything that that you that come you come across and anything that may or may not happen to you um and choosing to deal with those obstacles and those challenges um in a way that means that you're almost bulletproof um and i think that mental resilience has played a huge part if not the governing main factor in any successes I've had or ability to face things that's kind of been my grounding um across all facets of life just to be able to be resilient to the grenades that that life can throw at you um and I think that that resilience is probably the most important thing that I have in my armory um across all aspects of, of my life really um like I say whether that be professionally personally or obviously with, with health as well so um yeah massive massive um uh believer that the that, that mental resilience and mental strength is something that is crucially important um to anybody really just dealing with day-to-day life and you, where do you think that comes from for you 
it's really, really tricky to identify, and it is something that I have really tried to, introspe- you know, introspectively try and figure that out. I don't think that you're born with it necessarily. I mean, I wasn't really resilient when I was seven. I was, just, you know, as, as much affected by um, happenings or things happening to me as anyone else would be. Mm. I think that it's um, a double-edged sword because your mental resilience improves and increases the more you have on it um so i think yeah. the more is that you face um the more uh, you become or can become more immune to those challenges um it's serious really really when you've got back um the first time it's obviously feels like the world's ending second time still pretty bad third time you start to get used to it fourth fifth sixth time it becomes just any other any other tuesday um so i think that my mental resilience has been developed over the years by dealing with knockbacks and um, obstacles um, and then realising that I had that reserve, that mental resilience there and then just cultivating it um, and yeah. building and improving it and, and strengthening it as I, as I went along, really. So it's a bit like a muscle. You think you can kind of improve and strengthen through use, <laughs> a little bit like exercise yeah. or yeah. boxing or something like that. It's... I think so. I think that mental resilience is hard earned. Um, as I say, you, you, you're not just mentally resilient straight out the gate. Um, it, it comes with it comes with um, yeah hard earned uh, experience having to face things and not shy away from things. And the more you do it, the more you realise you're not made of glass um, and, and tackle these things um, and the world keeps spinning. Um, so, yeah, I think that, but, but then equally, you put, yourselves in, you put yourself in positions where you're susceptible to taking these knocks. So if I had a nine-to-five job and I never took any risk, the, the, the chances of me having to face circumstances where I had to be mentally, mentally resilient would be reduced. So whilst it almost is that you're tackling things as they happen to you as an entrepreneur or as a risk taker, you're very much putting yourself in those positions for things to go wrong um, and therefore cultivating that resilience as you go along. That's interesting because my next question was actually going to be, why do you think mental resilience is so vital in business? But it sounds like maybe what you're saying is it's a bit of a chicken and egg situation where mental resilience is really important in business, but the people who go into business were likely mentally resilient before they decided to do so to take that yeah. risk or yeah or equally they, their mental resilience is, is strengthened as their journey as an entrepreneur goes along um mm. you're always going to get knockbacks um you're always going to have things go horribly wrong um I mean, we, we i've made catastrophically bad judgments in business um as has every business person who has reached a, a level um, nobody gets it right straight out the gate oh yeah uh, <laughs> Yeah, I think that you're resilient. As I say, you're putting yourself constantly in these positions where you have to be mentally resilient and then your mental resilience improves and then you're able to tackle situations better and the whole thing snowballs, hopefully into a position where you can face anything. Well, that seems like a pretty good segue because it's one thing to remain resilient in the face of day-to-day challenges of life and business, but I know we're going to talk today about how to maintain that in the face of catastrophe and over the last few months you've certainly faced circumstances that have demanded that of you so do you want to walk us through your I guess your experience over the last few months to provide context for this next part of the conversation as we talk about your journey with cancer 
Yeah, so the context is that um, I thought I was resilient before. Um, I really, really thought that I, I, I'd seen it all, done it all, and, and um, I was in a position where nothing could knock me. Um, and to be honest, I, I was right, really, because about four months ago, um, I started to get a stomach ache. Um, nothing serious at all at first, it was quite mild, um, just sort of like a little rumble followed by a little bit of pain, but nothing that I even gave a second thought to. Three or four days later, same thing again. Um, and then it slowly but surely um, and very quickly escalated into a point where it was relentless agony. Um, I was in crushing uh, physical pain. It was um, curled up in a ball in bed, howling, crying out just to try and dull the pain, just to try and take the focus away. It was absolutely... Um, yeah, yeah, 10 out of 10 um, pain. So ended up in A&E, um, was in there for nine or 10 hours, um, diagnosed with constipation, tried to send me home with a DIY enema. Um, someone touched my stomach for two or three seconds and said, there's nothing wrong with you. Um, so ended up after nine hours just going home. Um, they just discharged me without so much as a paracetamol in my pocket. Um, woke up the following morning and it was even worse. Um, so I went straight back. Um, was in there for eight or nine hours again. Um, really sort of refusing to uh, give any more of any kind of uh, diagnosis or investigation. Um, and I happened to be sitting next to a chap, an old boy, must have been, I think, probably 75 or 80. And he had esophagus cancer. And I was writhing in pain in the ward. Um, and he came over to me and sort of lent in and said, do not leave this hospital without having a CT scan. Like, do not leave here until they consent to a CT. I'd, I'd never even heard of a CT scan, didn't know what it was. Um, so anyway, the doctor came and tried to discharge me again. And I said, look, I'm not leaving here without a CT scan, despite not even knowing what a CT scan was. Um, and he came back about an hour later and said, right, okay, if you really insist, we'll take you for a CT scan. Um, so went off to the little thing where you go in like the little tube and they inject dye into your blood system to show up all your organs and everything. Had the CT scan, back to the ward, um, and I was actually put in a little private cubicle um, on a bed uh, with curtains around it. Um, I was in there for about two hours and could hear people milling around in the common areas. And then I heard one somebody say, oh, we've got Richard's results here. So I called out and said, oh, that's me. I'm in, I'm in here. Um, what do they say? And he shouted back through the curtain saying... Ah, um, there's been a significant find in your in your CT scan. It didn't even come into the, <laughs> the cubicle. <laughs> he just shouted it through the curtain. Um, so I got out of the bed and walked into the common area, and I said, well, what does a significant find mean? Um, and they said, well, there's nothing else we can do today. Um, you're discharged, and we'll write to you. So I thought, I said, well, how long does that take? They said, well, it takes about two weeks to write to you, um, and then sort of two weeks later, we'll sort of get an action plan in to, to see what the significant find is, so a month, basically. Um, so I came out of the hospital, my wife picked me up and I said what happened and she said, yeah, no no way. Like, there's absolutely no way we're waiting for a month to find out what this significant find is. Yeah. So we rang into the hospital and said, look, no, we need to be quicker than that. They said, well, look, you can have a colonoscopy, but it's a three or four week waiting list. Um, so we said, well, we're not doing that either. So our hand was forced, so we had to go private. So the next day we had a CT scan in a private hospital um, and... Uh, not a CT scan, apologies, colonoscopy. Um, and I was laying on the thing, watching the screen, um, and they put the camera up and went up around the corner. And as they went around the corner, there was this big, grotesque ball of bleeding uh, lump. 
Um, and I sort of said, that doesn't look good. Um, and one of the nurses came and put her arm around me and another one held my hand and I thought, oh, bloody hell, this really isn't good. Um, so they finished the colonoscopy, uh, went to the meeting room and they said, yeah, it's uh, it's absolutely certainly cancer. Um, but don't worry, it's confined to the colon. It's stage two. Um, whilst this is very scary and all cancer is serious, it should be a simple operation to cut it out, stitch the colon back together get on with your life basically so I thought right okay uh operation was booked for three weeks later uh went in for the op uh, went under general um woke up woke up with a colostomy bag in my stomach which I wasn't expecting um and was taken back to the ward um and the alarm bells didn't ring I don't know why but I was told after the operation I'd be in five days total segregation no visitors no nothing um five days in a ward on my own um, whilst I recovered from the removal of the, the tumour. Uh, one of the nurses said, your wife's on the way. Uh, she'll be here in about 15 minutes. And I just thought, oh, great. They must have changed the rules for me. I must be in a different type of ward and everything's going to be fine. Um, unbeknownst to me, Lisa had already had a call from the surgeon um, and was rushing to the hospital uh, to be with me. She walked into the room, um, obviously had been crying, and I started to think, mm, what's this all about? And... The nurse had my notes to the left-hand side, and I said, oh, can I have a look at my notes? And she gave them to me, and I read it, and it said, um, advanced tumour, um, metastasis to the peritoneal ornamentum, and I googled it quickly. And uh, big bold writing at the top of the Google search said, prognosis three to six months. And I thought, uh, this has moved sideways on me. And then within two or three seconds, a surgeon walked in um, and told me the Upon opening me up, um, he found that the uh, tumour had burst through my colon wall and had run riot in my abdomen. Um, I had a further 25 tumours in my peritoneal. Um, so I'd gone from one tumour to, to 26 in total um, with deposits in my pelvis, my abdomen, my omentum, which is the fatty tissue around your organs, um, my bowel wall, my bowel lining, um, and it had broken out of the colon and welded itself to the inside of my rib cage. Um, so it had gone from a relatively simple, while scary operation to move, remove stage two tumour um, to being told that I had probably three months to live. Um, so we dealt with the news of the three months to live for about 12, 14 hours. That's how it was left. Um, Lisa was, I was immediately moved to a private ward. Lisa was allowed to stay. They set up a camp bed for her. So we spent the night um, with the knowledge that I probably wasn't going to get to Christmas. Um, and then the following morning, about four or five surgeons came marching in and said, if you're up for a fight, then we've potentially got a plan. They spent all night banging the door down to a specialist clinic in Basingstoke, sending all my stands over, discussing me as an individual, my personality, who I am, um, the stage of the cancer. And this very specialist clinic in Basingstoke basically said, I can prove that the cancer can be got under control by chemo, then they would potentially consider an operation. So... That was how it was left. That was 12 weeks ago. I've now had five rounds of the most toxic chemotherapy regime that they dare give to a human being, Folfoxiri, um, which is four of the most poisonous chemo drugs that you can have. Um, so I've had five rounds of that. And I get the results on Thursday, um, day after tomorrow, um, to find out whether the chemo has worked and whether or not I'm going to be eligible for this surgery. So in a relatively sort of nutshell, that's basically my last, 14 weeks uh, from a little stomach ache to escalating um, pain to being told it was stage two whilst it's a worry not a huge worry um, to them being told I've got three months to live 
to them being told um, we may have a chance of, of doing something. Um, so I'm now 48 hours away from knowing whether those that 12 weeks of, of heinous, awful chemotherapy is, has been worth it. So that's kind of the, the context of, of where I am. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I've, I've obviously heard you talk about this a number of times now and it never gets any less horrifying. Um, yeah. I, I just think given, given the amount of trauma, fear, uncertainty, curveballs that have been thrown at you and your wife Lisa I think a lot of people will be wondering how on earth you maintain stoicism in the face of all that can you can you kind of talk about that like how how have you been dealing with this in such a measured and calm way and have you have you always been measured and calm or have you had your blowouts and and moments Uh, I mean I I got over the fact that it was stage four cancer I think in about 48 hours um how the first few days were pretty dark, um, the first, and I was I was scared. The first few days, I felt fear. Um, I, I've got no shame in in, in admitting that. Um, <clears throat> to be faced with your own death um, is something that you don't know how you react to it until it happens, and you hope you never have to have that conversation, really, um, or at least not until you know very old age. But within forty eight hours, I'd made peace with the diagnosis. Um, I'd made peace with the fact that I might be one of the statistics, one of the people that die young. Um, I'm 36, just turned 36. I actually found out what cancer do after I turned 36. Um, and I just made peace with it. I just decided that if this was what was going to happen to me, then this was what was going to happen to me. Um, there was absolutely no sense in throwing myself about, rolling around on the floor crying or bemoaning my luck or blaming anyone, blaming, you know, or you know anyone you could think to blame I just decided that if this is what it is this is what it is um and from 48 hours after finding out decided that I was just going to continue with my life as normal for as long as I for as long as I could right how uh I don't know (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I don't know I think that when you base your personality on mental strength and mental resilience you spend decades cultivating that it becomes your best friend. Um, so I just lent on the mental resilience and the courage that I've cultivated with, in, with deliberate intent over the last 10, 15 years. And it, like I say, it becomes your best pal. So what was already there, I called on um, and I had to dig deep. It wasn't there on tap, but I was able to lean on it. And as I lent into it, it went back and I've got to be honest, mentally, after those 48 hours across the last 14, 16 weeks, I've been fine ever since. Um, I've had one or two moments during the chemo, um, the, 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 the one or two days following chemotherapy where you feel absolutely horrendous, um, where I have felt like, oh, I don't know if I can do this. Um, but when I come out of that physical sickness, um, my brain then comes straight back and says, no, you can't, you can't do this. Yeah. And before we move on to the next question, I, I guess I'm really interested to know, because you talked about having cultivated that mental resilience over the years. Is there a process you think that people can can call on or which you call on to sort of improve that when they are faced with with a really shit situation? Is there is there kind of a, a step that you can recommend or or a way of 
thinking about is there anything like meditation or anything like that that you you call upon personally or is it just natural to you now no I I just decide that nothing is more powerful than I am even death I just decide that I'm not gonna let anything beat me even a prognosis of three months to live like you've been okay you've got three months to live right okay I'm not going to let that dominate my life, my headspace, and I just decide that I'm bigger and stronger than anything that can happen. Um, if you if you, you can take you, you can take the power away from these things if you decide to look at them in a certain perspective. And my perspective is: if I'm going to die, I'm going to die. Everybody dies. Everyone checks out at some point or another. Yeah. Uh, and if now is the time where I'm going to go. So dear, and I rob cancer of its power because I decide that I'm okay with what's happening, um, and I decide that whatever happens to me, I decide that right, okay, that's happened. Um, so now what? And I, I just don't let it. I don't let. I don't let it beat me under any circumstances. And I've said before that cancer may very well bring me to my knees physically and there's a very very good chance it will i mean the chances of me surviving this cancer is about five percent there's a 95 percent chance that it's going to kill me um so the chances of it bringing me to my knees physically are, 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 are you know very very good chance chances of it bringing me to my knees mentally are zero i don't care what any statistics are out there or previous you know evidence of who survives the, the chances are, are, are a flat zero that it will bring me to my knees mentally it just won't happen um, even if I'm in a hospice and I'm seven stone and I'm rattling for breath, my kidneys are failing, it won't beat me mentally. There's no way. My spirit will be the same no matter what happens. I will always retain good humour, uh, good grace, um, kindness, empathy for others, empathy for myself, pride. Um, I just I just decide that nothing is is, is bigger than who, who I am and, and, and what I feel about myself and nothing's ever going to beat me mentally. Everyone dies physically. Physically, you're going to get got by something. Car crash, what be? You're going to get got by something. But you can choose not to get got mentally. I really do believe that. Um, And yeah, I just won't ever let, won't ever let anything beat me in that way. Even stage four. Yeah. So, Rich, you start. You share a lot online about this process and your journey and your treatment, your experience, cancer, how you're dealing with it, um, how your family, you know, how your wife is dealing with it. How? What? Why does it feel important to you to share this experience and this journey with people? Yeah, I think that my view on anything is that no matter what is going on, it's better to do something than nothing. Even if the, something that you do do ends up being a mistake, it's better to do anything than to do nothing. Um, and in the days after my diagnosis, I just thought, how could I do something, do something, do anything? Um, and I, I, will, I have to admit that my first thought went to business and I incorporated Balbro Limited, bought the domains, bought all the emails, and I thought I'm going to monetize this somehow. <laughs> um, whether it was selling Balbro merch or, or something like that, set up the Instagram, got the Instagram handle. But that idea of, of turning this into a business opportunity lasted about a day um, because right. within a day, I sort of got about a thousand followers and I started getting in and messages of other cancer sufferers and how 
the page was giving them hope and it, it very quickly went from thinking how can I turn this into an opportunity to how can I actually use this as a power for good really um so I think I like doing the Balbro stuff initially it was something to do anything to do um then it was sort of thinking right how can I turn this into some sort of opportunity and then very quickly it became about raising awareness um speaking to other people in the same situation and trying to give hope to other people um I mean I've had quite literally thousands of messages from people saying that what I'm doing with Balbro I hate to say this because it sounds just think it sounds a bit arseholey to say it but that <laughs> that it's changed their lives yeah. my content on Balbro where they've been stuck in bed for four weeks with the curtains closed can't get up because of they've got cancer and they've watched the videos and thought no stop that I'm going to get up and I'm going to get out today if he can do it I can do it um, yeah. and if I can do it anyone can do it and I've had hundreds of messages from people saying you've literally changed my perspective on my diagnosis that just became priceless and it became addictive um, so now anything I can do to raise awareness about it bring um, shine light onto the symptoms but it's now become more than anything about trying to provide hope for other people in the same situation. That really is the, the, the driving force behind it now. Yeah. I think it might be worth as well here just tackling a bit of an assumption that I think people might jump to about stoicism, mental resilience, because I know there's kind of a, a little bit of a, a conflict here, I think, because following your journey, I know that you've, you've shared thoughts on the idea of kind of, um, I guess toxic masculinity which is like a super inflammatory way of putting it but it boils down to the idea that men aren't really given the tools to prioritize self-care and express their emotions and as a consequence feelings get bottled up but even more importantly and more relevant to your story men's mental health issues and symptoms often go unchecked and I'm really interested in your take on this because I know you're a big proponent of men talking about their experiences with cancer and sharing the symptoms and what they need to look out for um and uh, I'm interested to know how you reconcile that I guess with the significance on stoicism and mental resilience yeah. so can you talk about I, the difference between those yeah I, I don't think that they're mutually exclusive mm. I think there's is a form of self, self-care um and I, again, equally as well, I don't let any, don't let anything get me. I, I don't buy into narratives that I don't agree with or, or, or think are, stu- are stupid. Um, and I think to say that to be stoic, strong, and resilient is somehow toxic. Just I just don't buy into that narrative. I don't give it. A, I don't even entertain that for a second because mm. how can being strong, resilient, and hopeful and and as I say gracious and good humoured and then trying to allow others to follow that lead of 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 that whilst being mentally strong there's no toxicity in that whatsoever um and I think to say that being stoic means that you don't talk but stoicism isn't isn't any even strong and silent maybe in in the 60s you'd class as but stoicism you can be stoic and talk um be mentally tough and discuss your experiences and emotions. It's, it's a lot tougher to talk to people about your fears and your vulnerabilities um, than it is to not talk about them. So strength and vulnerability go hand in hand. I mean, it's the, it's the polar opposite of saying they're mutually exclusive. They are bedfellows. Um, so to think that there's some sort of magnificity in me saying... 
uh, I'm stronger than this, nothing's going to beat me. I, I, I actually think it's the total opposite. Um, I'm, I'm vulnerable in, 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 in that sense that uh, to be mentally strong um, it means that you also have to accept that you have something to, you've got to be mentally strong about. You're admitting that you're in trouble. You're admitting that you're in a sticky wicket, that, that you're in a real pickle here, but I'm going to choose to be uh, resilient. Um, so some, the, the sort of narrative of, of, of um, male toxicity in regards to mental resilience, I just don't give that narrative a second thought because I think it's right. nonsense. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that was yeah. totally fair enough. I, I, was, yeah. I tend to agree. I, I think it's an interesting point to raise, I thought, to, to find out how you, how you feel about that because I know you have talked several times about the importance of raising awareness because this is such a prevalent problem for men, not going to the doctors, not getting their symptoms checked. I guess what words of encouragement would you have for men who perhaps have bought into this narrative and feel like they're, you know, they're struggling to marry those two ideas together to be, to, to believe what you've just said, which is that hard conversations are um, being brave and are being strong. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how this is going to land, but I would say it's probably just time to grow up. It's probably time <laughs> to one side, this kind of narrative that, oh, I want to go to the doctor. Oh, you won't ever get me down it. It's time to move on from that perception um, that that's what makes a man. Um, what makes a man is doing everything he can to ensure that he's around long enough to be there for his family, be there for his kids. And the idea that you're tough um, and, and a man's man because you won't ever get your, your health checked out, to me, it makes you the opposite. It makes you a bit of a cat really um, especially for people relying on you so I think there's time to leave that and I think we are leaving that in the past of our generation I mean you're going to get stonewalls in their 60s who still won't go and nothing you can do about that but I think the generation coming through now um, I think that men are not that uh, that way inclined as much anymore Um, I think that if men have a problem with their health and they're more likely to get it checked out now than perhaps in the generation before us. And I think it's just time to just move on from that. And I think as well, it can be a self-perpetuating thing. It's almost a self-fulfilling prophecy. The more, we, the more that narrative is out there, the more we say, oh, men do this. It's a self-fulfilling issue. I think we just need to stop believing that that's the truth and start recognising that 99% of men, if they're passing blood when they're going to the toilet, are probably going to go to the, the doctors. Um so I think that I'm hoping, I really hope that that kind of is, is gradually being left behind, that idea that a man is somebody who soldiers on. Um, you've got a soldier on in certain aspects um, with things, but in terms of your actual physical health, I mean, you're just a bit of a dumbo if you don't take that seriously. If, if, you, if you're having serious, health, serious physical health issues and you ignore them, um, almost makes me a bit cross because I think you're not, doing the things you need to do to ensure the people, not just yourself, but the people around you. Um, Mm. Because certainly my health struggles have impacted the people around me mentally far more than they have myself. Um, So I think, yeah, thinking that there's some sort of stoicism in in, in not looking after yourself, I think that's for the birds. I think I'm really hoping that that is very much dying out. Um, And I think it is, to be honest. Yeah, yes, hoping. So it's an interesting point you just touched on, though, actually, it's probably worth mentioning, because I know that you've shared a lot about obviously your experience and you've brought your wife Lisa in on stories and asked about her experience as well. You've mentioned that the people around you have, have found this more difficult than you have. How has how has that been for you? How has that experience of watching the people who you care about struggling and how 
how do you sort of try and I guess support them with with the mental resilience you've developed yeah I mean it's, it's definitely the hardest aspect of of what's happening um but I think well I've certainly um deliberately tried every single day to make my cancer as easy on the people around me as possible um so I'm not laying in bed crying I'm not um uh, sort of worrying. I've really very. I've gone into the um, the meetings with the oncologist with Lisa in good humour. Start off with a joke, and you know, just I've just tried to make my cancer as easy as possible on the people around me. And whilst that's not always possible, obviously, um, trying to support it's really really difficult because I've got because I've got my own fight to win. Um, expending energy supporting those around me it's energy I'm happy to expend and if I had to expend all of it doing that I would but I've been really really fortunate in the sense that the people around me recognize that I'm not giving up um so they shouldn't either um I'm not bemoaning my luck so they shouldn't either um I'm laying in bed all day crying about what might be so they're not um and I've just Try, I very much just try to lead by example, lead from the front. Um, yeah. I've said right at the beginning to my dad, you don't start getting worried and upset unless I do. Follow my lead. If I'm okay, if I'm cheerful, if I'm getting on with stuff, then you be okay, you be cheerful and you get on with stuff as well. If it comes to a point where I can't do that anymore, I will tell you and then we can both roll around on the floor crying. Until that day comes, we're getting on with things as normal. Um that's not to mean that they don't hide their pain from me. I know they do. I know that they're obviously incredibly worried. Um, I'm their eldest son. I'm 36 um, and I'm facing really long odds. So I know that they are struggling, but I think that we've, we just lean on each other um, when we can. Um, and I don't make it difficult for them in any way. Um, I just, yeah, the last thing that they need is me crumbling. Um, so yeah, I, I won't, I won't ever crumble. Um, not just for myself, but for those around me, I can't think of anything worse than, I mean, if I imagine that somebody I loved had cancer and they were literally d- just desperately like, Oh my God, I think I would, I don't know how to cope with it. So, so I just refuse to do that to, to the people around me. I just won't, just won't do that. So uh, what'd be interesting, I guess, if there's people listening, cause let's be honest at some stage of our life, we're all gonna either experience this ourselves or know someone who is that's the nature of the beast what advice would you have for people who are listening who maybe know someone or love someone who's going through this journey right now with cancer how can they best support how can they best support them what have you found most helpful in terms of the support you've had from your friends and family I think just retain normality um they follow the lead of the person who's sick and equally as well, this, work both, this works both ways. There are going to be a vast majority of cancer sufferers who are not able to put one foot in front of the other. And that's totally understandable. I would never, ever uh, say that you should do X, Y, and Z. I'm, I'm uh, on my journey the way I'm on it. I would never, ever presume to tell anybody how they need to uh, do their journey. So I would say the most important thing you can do is follow the lead of the person who's sick. If they're down and depressed, then be there, be empathetic, arm on the shoulder. If they want to get on with things, let them get on with things. If they want to carry on as if nothing's happening, then support that as well. I would say that you really need to watch the person who's ill closely 
and almost mirror um, how they are. Um, and if something positive was the only things worse thing you could do is, is sort of be like, oh no, but you know, you, you're sick, you need to take a... And equally, if somebody does want to take a rest, the worst thing you can say to someone is, oh, come on, you know, let's get these curtains open and get you out. I think really and truly, if you are a family member of somebody who is ill, you just need to follow their lead. And the tricky thing is that that could change daily. Uh, one day they want to get up and go on with things, and then the next day they don't. So you might feel as if you don't know how to um, react. But I think you just need to monitor them closely and just try and reflect their attitude. Because um, the last thing you need, as I say, is when you want to mope, someone trying to stop you from moping. And when you want to get on with things, someone trying to hold you back or slow you down. So I think the, the best support I've had is that everybody has followed my lead and how I want to tackle this. Um, and they did it unquestioning. They just did it. They didn't. <laughs> yeah. I said, this is how we're going to play this. And they said, well, okay, yes. we'll go. We trust you. We'll follow your lead. And I think that that's what I needed, really. It's having people on your team. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah, exactly. And I think that trust is a big thing too. I think the people around me, I think I've earned the right to have them trust my decision making. Um, and I think that they've just treated this as anything else. If I've said to my wife, right, we're going to sell this house, we're going to buy another one, we're going to invest in this business and, and bid in that one. We're at a point now where she's no long enough that she trusts whatever decisions I make. And the decision with cancer was just to literally just come and get on with things. I probably did not even think about taking any time off work. Get, you know, we're just going to carry on until I can't run anymore and she's mm-hmm. followed and she's put on with it and that's helped me you know untold amount um so yeah that's that that, that would be my, my advice to people with the family members or loved ones cancer follow their lead however yeah. they want to be open which is totally understandable or whether it's they want to get on with stuff or whether it's somewhere in the middle so it strikes me, I haven't met Lisa, but I have seen her a lot on your social media. It strikes me that you have chosen a partner who is equally mentally resilient. Do you think that's really important? And is that is that part of the reason that you're, you know, you guys work so well together, do you think? Lisa is formidable. She is <laughs> something else. Um, similar to me, just when she was 16, and she's clawed her way to the absolute pinnacle of her industry. Um, she's one of the UK's leading, most sought-after, respected consultants in her field. Um, fresh out of school, um, did her master's at the Open University, whilst also working as a, in the industry she's in. Uh, so, yeah, I think we must have somehow gravitated towards each other because um, the similarities, whilst cause huge conflicts, um, are ultimately our, our main strength. Um, and yeah, Lisa is as equally tough, if not tougher, than I am. Um, again, doesn't let things penetrate, takes everything in her stride. Uh, I mean, don't get me wrong, I mean, there have been moments where she has been a pile, you know, a pile on the floor, sobbing her heart out. Um, Understandably. Yeah, I don't want people to think that we're literally just like, totally um everything's fine all the time um there are moments where she does totally break um but within an hour she's dusted herself off and she's back to being lisa again um we're really really fortunate neither one of us has has broken at the same time so when she's had a a break uh, i've been strong and if i've been feeling flat she's been strong so we've been really lucky that we haven't both sort of crumbled at the same time i'm sure that will happen at some um up until now we've been there to support each other um and yeah i couldn't have done any of this without lisa but um she's been um 
yeah, as soon as I decided I want to get on with things, she didn't question it. She just said, right, okay, we're going to get on with things. And, and, and that's exactly what we did. Um, and yeah, she's been every step of the way. She's not missed a meeting. She's not missed a chemo session. Um, she's not missed uh, blood taking. Where even the most innocuous little problem I've got to go to, she's gone with me to all of it. Um, and yeah, she's been she's been unbelievable. Unbelievable. Couldn't have asked for a better partner. It affects life with in general. Um, but to face this down or bear this down, she's, I couldn't imagine anyone better to have shoulder to shoulder with me uh, facing this together. Yeah, for sure. She's uh, amazing. It's something else. Oh, we should all be so lucky. <laughs> yes. So my next question, Rich, as a writer, I'm a big believer that parts of the reason, I guess, that people tell stories and write our thoughts or feelings down or record videos, share diary entries, all that kind of stuff that we do is is because we want to leave something meaningful behind. So I guess I'd love to know how you view the idea of legacy through the lens of your diagnosis. And has that become more of a priority for you in light of what you've been going through? Legacy is now evident. It's absolutely everything. Everything I do um, from the moment I wake up to the moment I go to bed is about securing um, a life without me um, and how life will look for my parents, my wife, um, everyone around me if the worst should happen. So from the moment I I was sick, I started to put into place uh, fail-safes for um, my loved ones, basically. So Lisa's younger brother was in a job he didn't like. He's now an electrical apprentice with my business. We've got that all set up. College starts in September. He was somebody that I specifically wanted to pluck from things being a bit tricky for him to get him on a path so that Lisa doesn't have to worry about him because I know she worries about him loads. So he's now on a path of um, independence, self-reliance, self-sufficiency. That was a box ticked. Um, we're currently building a house. We started building a house before I got sick. Um, I've pulled out absolutely all the stops on that to ensure that that house is finished um, before anything might happen to me. So that Lisa is totally secure um, in that way. Uh, we set up a secondary business, which I've made Lisa a 50% director of. Um, that will provide residual, residual income should I die um, and not be able to run the business. I've gone into business with a, with a partner who's able to run the business and Lisa is a silent um, partner of 50%. So everything that I do now is about laying the foundations so that everybody around me will be okay um, should I die from from this uh, this illness. So, yeah, leaving a lasting legacy is pretty much my main motivating factor in everything I'm doing um, and will continue to be so. And just ensuring that I'll be able to pass over, if you want to use that term, way more peacefully now than I would have been able to have done three or four months ago before I put these things in place so it's probably from a selfish perspective to to, to know that if it comes to the point where I'm laying there and I know it's the end that I can go knowing that I've protected everybody Lisa will be financially secure or life um, and that all these things are in place um, I'll be able to go a lot more um, I won't have any regrets, I won't have any resentments, I won't have any worries. I'll know that everybody's going to be okay. Um, and that is really and truly, from the moment I found out that I was sick, everything has been about that, ensuring that I'm going to leave behind uh, enough so that people, everyone that I care about is going to be all right. And so, yeah, legacy is everything to me now. Yeah. So 
Before we go, I know that raising awareness of colorectal cancers and the symptoms people should be looking out for is a big priority for you and that you'd like your experience to be a reminder to people of the importance of self-advocacy and removing the stigma around this topic. Are there any particular resources, charities, campaigns you'd like to direct people's attention to? Do you want to share what the most obvious symptoms to be looking out for are so that if yeah. people are listening, they can be aware of that? Yeah, so there's a, there's a charity, um, their Instagram handle is The Bowel Movement, um, run by Jose and her daughters. Um, they're Jose's son, Jose and Amp's son, um, Benj Millard, died when he was 33 from bowel cancer. Um, and they set up a charity in his, um, his honour. Um, and they are doing unbelievable things, unbelievable things in terms of raising awareness. They provide a hardship fund for people who are newly diagnosed. Um, in terms of a small charity um, that is making a huge difference to people's lives, the Bowel Movement is somebody that I would definitely recommend following. Um, cancer Research UK is the gold standard in terms of information about cancer. You can get a lot of guff on Google, on the internet, um, if you want facts, uh, statistical facts. Um, obviously, Bowel Bro, my charity, I try and share as much information in there as I possibly can. Um, yeah, the bowel movement, cancer, uh, never too young is another good one. Um, another bowel cancer charity and, and, and source of information for young people with, with bowel cancer. You become wrapped up in the community as soon as you've got cancer. The first thing you do is start on Facebook for staff, Instagram, and all of us founded by three or four thousand people. Mm. Uh, just a, the most community you can, it's a community you never want to be a part of. It's the last community you ever want to be a part of. But once you are part of the community, um, you realize how amazing people are uh, or can be um, and uh, when people face catastrophe 99.9% of the time rather than becoming embittered or resentful their empathy and kindness doubles for others um, people that are, are, are on their lot probably maybe on the, in the last weeks rather than months still the kindest people you could ever meet no bitterness about them they just want to help um, so yeah, uh, you, you'll find your tribe. If you, if you get sick, you'll find your people online and it, you won't have to look far. It's not hard. They're there. Um, but yeah, the Bowel Movement, Cancer Research UK, obviously Bowel Bro, my page, Never Too Young. Um, they're all really, really good sources of, of information when it comes to this sort of thing. So yeah. yeah. The, so just to finish up then, I know that we're going to be hopefully releasing this video um, before you get your test results on Thursday, which is in two days time at yeah. time of recording. Um, you obviously that's a big day you've shared yeah. that that's when you're getting your results to determine the next steps in this journey for you I guess there's two things first of all how are you feeling in anticipation of that you know to get that on the record before this goes live and and your results come out and how are you planning to spend the the sort of 10 to 12 weeks before your operation if that is going to go ahead yeah, I mean, I'm almost, I don't know whether it's kind of like a bit of hysteria is setting, um, but I, I, I feel like I'm fine about, about Thursday. I mean, I'm absolutely convinced that some kind of defence mechanism in my brain that's doing that. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I feel like, uh, yeah, I, think it's just, I think it's some kind of mental hysteria, I've got to be honest. I think that somehow, I think, I think largely it's my ADHD. I think my ADHD is protecting me on this journey unbelievably. Because I'll have it in my head thinking, oh, bloody hell, I've got stage four cancer. And then instantly, they'll be like, yeah, but you need to order 27 doors for the house. And then 
We need 250 metres of skirt, and then if it's not there by Tuesday, the carpenters can't be on. So I, I literally have, I can't ever dwell on anything. I try and dwell, I try and think, oh God, I've got Canada, I, I can't. Um, so uh, That's so interesting. It's like a superpower in this situation. Yeah, yeah I'm, just, I'm totally self-protected by my Dumbo brain that won't let me ever focus on anything for more than three seconds. Um, so yeah, in terms of uh, Thursday, I feel like, I mean, obviously, um, I sort of joke about it and, and, and what have you, but it's... It's a very, very serious day. Um, it really is a life or death decision. Whatever way it's gone, it's going to determine whether I've got a chance of living, whether I'm definitely going to die. So it's, it is huge, but I feel okay about it. What will be, will be. Um, in terms of if it's good news, uh, and I have to come off of all treatment for 10 weeks before the op, so your body recovers from the chemo and basically get a 10-week window, um, which oncologist has described as your bucket list window. Um, go and do whatever you want to do. But I'm I'm so boring. All, all I really am going to want to do in them ten weeks is get into the new house, cook nice food, watch TV, hang out with Lisa. Um, I've got no major desires of like I want to go to the movies or anything like that. I don't really feel compelled to do anything like that. So if I get them ten weeks, it's basically going to be in the new house, open door policy. Anyone who wants to come and out, hang out with me, have dinner with me, watch a film with me. They can come. Um, I just want to spend them 10 weeks, spend as much time with my wife and friends and family as I can. Um, well, after hopefully, hopefully this operation. Um, and I mean, the operation is no means of full conclusion. If the king hasn't worked, there's an operation. Um, we'll know in 48 hours. Yeah. So if the operation goes ahead, what are the next steps then for you? So that would be in 10 to 12 weeks. Yeah. So it's a huge recovery. It's a huge operation. It's a huge recovery. So it's known as the mother of all surgeries, MOAS. Um, technical term is CRS and HIPEC, um, cytoreduction and, and HIPEC. So you're open from esophagus to just above your pubic bone. Um, it's a 1780 operation. Um, surgeons and nurses working in shifts. It's, it's huge. The trauma is, is unbelievable. Um, you're expected to be in intensive care for at least a fortnight, then high dependency ward for at least two or three weeks. Total stay in hospital about eight weeks, um, and then a recovery period of about six months before you're really back on your feet at all. So it's huge, um, but it's one of those situations. I'm praying that I can have it. I'm praying that I can be, you know, opened up from throat to you know the nether regions, and you're hoping that this horrible thing's going to happen because it's your chance you got. So yeah, I mean, we're not even. I'm under no illusions that whilst the journey has been hard and the chemo has been awful, um, we haven't really got started yet. Um, in terms of how bad this is going to be. So if I don't have this surgery, how bad it's going to get is that I'm going to be dead before my next birthday. If I do have the surgery, we're looking at incredible physical trauma with six to 12 months recovery. So we haven't even started yet on this journey. It's um, weird to wish six to 12 months of physical trauma on someone, but I really do. I, yeah, I really I, wish that for you. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so your whole goalpost move on what you think is acceptable in your life. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and now not only acceptable to go through the most traumatic surgery known to modern medicine I'm absolutely praying that it happens <laughs> yeah I think we all are so best of luck on Thursday I hope it goes really really well I know you'll share this video and hopefully share share the results when you've got them with everyone and I know we'll all be crossing our fingers for you thank you so much for being part of this conversation Rich no problem thanks for having me